Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. We're back at the beginning, Bereshit. In the beginning, from Genesis chapter 1 through the beginning part of chapter 6, just before the, the description of the flood that we've gone over uh, this particular section lots of times in the past. So one of the things to, uh, you can see some of the previous studies that we've done on this by going to halal.info slash p1, halal.info slash p1, that's p is in Peter, one. And you can see all the various studies that we've done on particular verses in here. So today we're going to be taking a look at specifically the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. So the the eighths ha hayim, the tree of life, and the eighths hadaat tov vara, or the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And translations say evil, or sometimes you say wickedness, but that's kind of like the archaic form of evil, which just means that something is bad. So. That is what we're going to be taking a look at here today. Now, starting off first, see that one of the things that we are seeing here, that there's two trees put here in the garden, which is very interesting because we just got done with the Torah cycle, which ends in Deuteronomy. And what do you see are some of the themes at the end of Deuteronomy? See, things, when you talk about two things, blessings and curses, so ticking them out more generally beyond blessings and curses. Choose life and not death. See, I set before you life. I set before you death. And here we are back at the beginning, and what do we say? Choose life or choose death. And so that's particularly what we're looking at with these two trees here. Choose two paths. Choose life, choose death. Now, a little bit of a hint of coming attractions that we'll be looking at throughout this study here today is what do you see at the end? Or you should say, maybe at the, the end of the beginning or the beginning of the beginning, which would be a revelation at the end of the book of Revelation, what do you see? One tree. The tree of life. So in that case, that choice between choose life, choose death, those that are going out the other side have chosen life. So that, that choice is then made. Choose life, choose death. Those that are there in the New Jerusalem, the world made new, are choosing life out the other end of that. So, and the tree of the tree of life, its fruits leads people to live forever. 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, its fruit leads people to the mot tamut, or to, to die dying, or in dying you will die. There's various different ways you can translate that. But basically, it is a road toward death. It says, in the day that you eat of it, to die dying. Or, as the apostle puts it, there is a sin that leads to death. And that there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. So, in the sense of what the, what the apostle is talking about, is you have the sin that will lead someone away, away so far that it will be the road to death. But then you've got one who may go down the way away from God, but then what? He turns around. Remember we were talking about the time of the, the day of blowing trumpets, Rosh Hashanah? There's two steps to repentance. What are those two steps again? Turn away from bad. Turn toward good. There's a two-step process. As, as we noted there with Yeshua's parable, that if you just turn away from evil, the parable they told of the guy who threw out the demon out of his house, and then the demon got seven others worse than him and went in, and it was worse at the end than at the beginning, is that it's not enough to turn away from it, because if you don't turn toward, back toward the good and go toward the good, all you're doing is just, you know, delaying the inevitable, because you are not actually having any sort of positive defense. I mean, you talk to anybody who has gone through some sort of uh, incredible compulsion, addiction, whatever you want to call those things. If you don't turn toward the good after turning away from the bad, you're pretty much toast. You won't last. You have to not only turn away from that thing that was dragging you towards death, but then turn sword towards something that will lead you towards life. That is the lesson throughout the Torah, throughout the entire Bible. That is the lesson. You must turn away from the thing that is bad and toward, to turn toward the thing that is good. And one of the great lessons of the tree of knowledge of good and bad is that you don't have to go to the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. If you want to truly go to the tree of life, you go to the one who gives you life. Not go to a tree, some other source beyond that. As one of the, the great lessons that's, that's put in there of this. It's not like setting up the first couple to fail, setting up all humanity to fail by putting that tree in there. That is like the ultimate choice. Well, what do you want to do? Because that indeed is one of the great things that, when, it, when we just read in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, it says that in the image of God, he created male and female. And we say, well, what does image mean? What does image mean? And that's actually a key part to understanding image. The image of God is the parallel passage parallel passage to Genesis chapter 1 is John chapter 1. 
And John chapter 1 is written a lot like using kind of similar phrasing, similar ideas of Genesis chapter 1, because they are bookends of the same idea. And a part of that is that the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. What is one of the key things that distinguishes mankind from everything else, all of the other thing that has the nefesh chaim or the, the breath of life in it, going from you know, your little kitty cat to your dogs to any sort of other animals that are on the earth? What is the key, key difference between mankind? But how would you distinguish that, that had the, the living soul had been breathed into, into mankind? Because it talks about when we get to our next passage, the passage of Noah, it talks about the flood, and it mentions there specifically everything that had nefesh chaim in it died. So there must be something more than just nefesh chaim being breathed into it, the breath of life being breathed into it, that distinguishes that's this image of God that's different. Okay, the only creature says make him in the image, but what is the key distinction of the image? Manipulate, being able to manipulate and create things. Yes, we're not able to create things out of nothing like he can. Any other ideas? Um, no, we have to use stuff that he created. Right. We rearrange things, and we make them do other things that they were either wanting to become or, or something that, that, that destroys things. And unfortunately, we do more of the destroying kind than the good kind. But yeah, do more we are, of the destroying. We are able to do things like that. It's almost as if we were... When in being in the image is almost as if this is this is the image of God is a is a creative ability, mm. although it's not really creative. It's just rearranged. Ah, creative. Well, you know, one of the yes, and well, he said you will dominate all the animals. Okay, dominate the giving, animals. He's giving man that job. Okay, well, the other creatures don't have. That kind of job. I mean, you know, a okay. purpose. Purpose. Well, um, spirit of man. Okay, what do you mean by that? Okay. So that being, that being the distinction, how can we know between the time that the breath of life goes into an animal or, uh, or a person and the time when they go back to God? How can you tell one versus the other? Right. So Larry, was, uh, we had ideas here about that uh, one of the distinctions between man and animals is that you can can manipulate uh, the things of the world, both for good and for bad. You can build things up, destroy things. And we also have the, the idea there of um, 
dominion over the animals. Okay, now just just to push back on that just a bit is that um, you will see people in the secular world will say, well, chimpanzees can make tools. They can make tools to do things that they would not normally do. I mean, just in the simple idea of using a tool like a like a twig or something to go get ants out of a out of a log. Now they are doing something, manipulating their world to get something that they couldn't have before. And on the idea of dominion, well, there's I was they always have the euphemism of a bigger dog. So some sort of bigger animal that's stronger dominion. We always talk about what is the king of the jungle, so to speak. A big, uh, a predator animal. I was calling like you know those those uh, top predators that have dominion over the area around. So you could say, well, you could say that there's other things in creation that are different. But you know, one of the things that Larry was was moving toward, and one of the things that uh, Rose was mentioning here, is about the idea of the spirit going up and and the animal uh, going down, and that's the idea of language language is a key thing now again people will say well you can teach sign language to a gorilla or you can teach them to certain certain other primates and you can they've taught rudimentary language to dolphins and there's other animals that you can teach rudimentary language to as well but one of the key things that's different about the language is then the creating of some sort of a message to do something else further with it. You know, it's one of the, the proverbial things that people will say, well, you just get enough monkeys sitting down at typewriters and then you end up with Shakespeare or whatever. Just get enough monkeys for enough period of time and you get Shakespeare. Well, the problem though is, is that neither the monkeys nor the dolphins nor the, the gray parrots nor any of these other animals that are unbelievably intelligent are able to do something just like what we read here today. That, to write something like that. Uh, yes, Deborah, go ahead. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Now, yes, and that and that's one of the key things that you see, especially like in the prophets. And what is one of the things that you see in the prophets, where the Lord says, "Come, let us do what together, reason, reason together." So thus, the Almighty and mankind is able to engage in something together. We call that prayer, going back and forth, the prayer back and forth. Communicating with the Creator, the Creator communicating with us, communicating to us through the Word, and uh, coming back uh, to us, and something builds further upon this. So, and we see that when we're going to see that after the flood, we can see just like what Deborah was was talking about with reasoning and going on to build a house or something like that, because you might notice that people that don't have a lot of knowledge how to build a house cannot build a house, even if they are a person with reasoning power and stuff, because you just don't know it. You have never been taught how to do that. 
So thus you can see in various uh, societies where you've had a, a disconnect or a breaking down of the, the knowledge, the body of knowledge. They talk about lost knowledge that happens, lost technology. Well, when that happens, then what you see afterward is very rudimentary stuff. Until what? The knowledge builds back up again from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. So that's what you see here with this knowledge of the tree of good and bad. This is where do you want to go for your knowledge to begin with? Do you want to go to the one who has the source of life? Or do you want to go to the knowledge or the tree of knowledge of good and bad? And well, as we'll see here going further, um, like in Genesis chapter 3, it mentions that this fruit looks like it wouldn't actually lead to death. In dying, you will die. Because as it mentions, they're related to um, when Chava or Eve went up to the tree. It says it, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise or desirable to make one wise. That you could actually build, because one of the things that we always remember in biblical language about knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, it's like a spectrum. Knowledge is just information. We call that data, just details. Wisdom is okay, you get details, you get information, then you can put the information into action. Understanding is the why. Why are you doing this? Why does it work? What is it for? That's understanding that goes beyond it. So thus, you can say, okay, good how to put those things into action. It'll take you, the, take you the route of, all right, how to put those things into action. But the understanding? Why is that tree there? Why is the tree of life there? And why did the Lord say, don't go to that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and bad? Is it what the serpent was saying? That the creator was just saying, okay, they're trying to keep, keep uh, godhood away from you, to keep the ability for you to become a deity away from you. So keep that away from you. Or is it that this way of knowledge of good and bad without understanding leads to death? It leads to a way that is not going to continue. Which has been one of the cases throughout all of history. Because everybody has sort of looked at this idea of, well, I can just figure out my own morality. I don't need some sky god or whatever to tell me what is good and what's bad. I can just figure stuff out myself. I know what's good. I know what's bad. Well, uh, yes, who is this uh, Pamela? Oh, hi, Diane. Go ahead. As you're speaking and that, to me, it's, it's not like God was denying human beings. There were reasons that he was asking them not to, you know, partake of that particular tree. He wanted them to lean on him 
for sustenance and understanding and both physi I mean physiological sustenance as well as spiritual sustenance in that and it wasn't that um he, he um uh, that he wanted uh, to prohibit them he didn't want to keep them it's not that he wanted to keep them unaware i i don't i don't see that in my the way i look at the scripture here but what i see is he's asking them to trust in the lord with all your heart lean not into your own understanding that's in all I mean. your ways acknowledge and he will direct your path. Amen. And so what at, what Eve did, she, you know, we know the, you know, the story. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And she took a bite, whatever kind of fruit it was, and gave some to her husband. And, of course, they knew that their things changed. They went from their glorified selves, their perfect selves. I think they were in a perfect, must have been in a perfect state in that garden. They must have been. Adam and Eve must have been some kind of individuals that God created, I mean, to, to give him and her dominion over a lot. I, I, and that. so the, what I'm going to is, um, is they took matters into their own hands, and they decided they were going to do it their way, and they realized they had sinned, so they went and hid, and then the Lord came down to fellowship with them in the cool of the day. And there's some really deep meanings in the cool of the, there's stuff there that's absolutely phenomenal, and I, I won't go into that part, but it's like, he already knew where they were, we all know that, and um, he wanted Adam to come out from behind of where he was, he knew exactly where he was located in the garden, and to confess what went on, but Adam uh, blames uh, God, he says, oh, it's the woman you gave me, she made me do it. He not only blamed God, but he also blamed the woman and that. And he, and he didn't, uh, and he wasn't exercising the faith and trust in the Lord, um, fully in the Lord. He was resting upon his flesh and worldly intellect, upon it, that he was, you know, upon intellect. But the last thing I wanted to say, which really jumps out at me, is if we really consider who God was, what Adam and Eve were saying to God is, Look, I can do that. We can do this. We don't need you to tell us what to do. And that uh, by taking matters into their own hands, which applies to me in my life, I'm telling God, I know better how to do this than you are. I know better how to handle this. So what that means for me is so it means uh, the one who trusts in the Lord does not lean on his or her own um, uh, pitiful, limited understanding. Uh, we're not looking, we're leaning on our own pitiful, limited understanding and not leaning on the unlimited price of God. We're, we're saying, I mean, if you consider who God was, um, he, he um, I mean, think about what it means uh, to, uh, what, the, I mean, to, it's only God who can handle such knowledge. That's what I wanted to say. So what this means is the one who trusts in the Lord and does not lean on his or her own pitiful understanding has unlimited access to God and that. So he blesses us and that. But when we try to do that, we're, we're um, I mean, consider the knowledge and that God has. We're, sometimes I think some of us, myself, are trying to put ourselves in the place of him, you know, saying, hey, we know how to get this done and we know how to do this. I'm sorry if it was a bit rugged in that I, and that. So we... Uh, uh, in my saying this, but 
it's like uh, even Daniel knew what it meant to lean on the king of the universe. I mean, he knew that God had the solution to every problem and that, so... Well, thank you for uh, talking about that, because that, that indeed is uh, one of the, the key understandings part of this, this verse, is that we do not lean to our own understanding. Yes, Larry. Well, I was going to say, um, is, is there any place, I mean, he didn't create things that were no good at all. He created things that could be used for good or could be used for evil. And I'm just wondering if there's any, ever any hint about what the tree was really for. I mean, we know that Satan was jealous of man's position, and that's why he wanted to tempt, tempt them, so he could get the position that men were getting, going to become God's bride eventually. So, but, I, but I'm wondering if there was anything that that tree could have been used for other than if it was just a test. Well, I guess that uh, might, might uh, get a little bit of a picture from the that our purely ornus there are some plants and stuff that are purely ornamental yet are deadly so we just know hey even as pretty as the fruit looks on that you don't eat that because it will kill you so we we just know that hopefully people didn't have to die for that knowledge <laughs> but Somehow, that knowledge has come down to us that there are certain things that will just kill you if you eat them, no matter how good they look. So, those are lessons that we have from the world around us that some things that look like they are nice are actually deadly. But, and you're asking about what is that, uh, what is that tree in the garden for, is actually a picture to show us where wisdom and uh, where knowledge and wisdom and understanding actually come from. Because one of the things that you see in this particular passage is that once you harvest from this tree of knowledge of good and bad, the tree of life is blocked from you. It also goes back to the what we see later on in biblical history with the um, the tabernacle and the thing, the offerings in the tabernacle. Now, the offerings in the tabernacle are good, right? Well, then why do we see in places like Isaiah chapter one that he says, "I hate your feasts." How can the one thing that was created to be good? that has God's name on it, these are the Lord's appointed times, then become bad. Yes, Deborah? Oh, um, I just wanted to say, too, God could, there was other beings and other things created before us. There were angels and there was other things created. And I think that when God put that tree there, there was things that were beyond our like knowledge and wisdom, the seven spirits of Adonai. I think that Satan knew that. Be, you know, because he, he tricked them and he knew because those, they were just newly born. They weren't whatever their amount of time on this earth was. They weren't as they weren't uh, privy to the knowledge of God. And the tree 
You know, it's like for us, he created us, you know, we were, you know, you just don't want your baby child to know about cancer and poisons and, and these things. So we, you know, so um, it's like putting unleaded fuel in a, in a, in a diesel. We, he knew what was best for us. We didn't know yet. We were too naive, but I'm sure now we do know why that tree was so dangerous after, you know, he's letting us figure this out, I believe, you know, because our parents made a bad choice, you know? So I don't know if that makes any sense, but. Yeah. It's all about trusting the one who actually gives the knowledge. We're not going to put unleaded fuel in a, in a diesel, right? Right. Because that then is revealed as what the lie was in that statement. When the adversary is saying to saying to the woman, well, he, you know, God just wants to keep this away from you because he knows that when you eat it, you'll be wise and you become like God, knowing good and bad. That is one of the deceptions that you always get and why, uh, why they're, they talk about don't go after sorcerers. You know, don't try to consult the dead. Don't go into necromancy. Don't go into these various things trying to get a source of knowledge of good and bad from some other source. Because ultimately, who is the creator of everything? You know, you're, we, we think about in the, in the world today, we want to find out what's going on. So who do we, who do we look toward? Uh, the, the, we call them today leakers, people within a government that are leaking information. Because then we find out what's really going on from the, from the leakers. Now the question, see, I, I work in the, in the realm of getting information. And one of the things that you always have to ask when anyone comes to you with information is, why are you giving me this information? What do you want out of it? Do you want something from me? Or how do I know that your information is actually trustworthy? So when you see later on, the apostle says, test everything. Yeah, that's true. You should test everything. Test the spirits. Test the teachers. Test all things. According to what? You know. According to the word of God. Which is where we're going with this. Because in particular, you see that Yeshua told a very interesting parable in this sense. We find one version of it here in Matthew chapter 7, but you find it in chapter 12. You find it in several different places where he gives this variation on it, including one where he talks about a very perplexing thing or even curses a tree. So in this particular one is Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. So this is uh, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Yeshua says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good fruit, nor can a bad tree produce bad, uh, good fruit. Uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So thus, you know what the tree is by the fruit that it produces. So then, 
when the the interesting thing that um, you know, one one commentator has has noted, well, there seems to be a a a connection between the fact that when the first couple is thrown out of Ganaden or the um, Garden of Eden, that there are the Cherubim, this class of heavenly heavenly messengers, the, the Cherubim, the covering ones, and they talk about this flaming they sword are stationed at the gate to not allow the people in. And they talk about this flaming sword that moves back and forth. And this picture of this flaming sword that moves in all directions it talks about. Well, it sounds a lot like what you see in Ezekiel's description of the throne room of God, where you've got these creatures, and they're always moving forward. No matter which way they're going, they're always moving forward. This picture being that they will go where they need to go, and they will always be moving in that direction. It's not like... They're kind of shifting to the side to a direction where they don't need to go. They're always going forward to that direction. So, various you you might have heard that uh, uh, Jewish commentators will talk about that the the pages of the Torah are like what leaves of the tree of life, or that the Torah is the tree of life. And that particular passage comes from uh, Proverbs chapter three, verse eighteen. So if you look at uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 18, talks about, She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who hold her fast. Well, what is your first question then should be about this? Who is she? Who is she? Well, if you recall, when you go through the book of Proverbs, what is the topic of the first, basically, three chapters of Proverbs? Wisdom. Wisdom is the topic of the first three chapters. So, interestingly enough, wisdom is often also talked about in various literature, kind of leading up to the first century. Wisdom which is, you know, this idea of uh, chokhmah, or that's the idea of, as we talked about, knowledge, and then wisdom, and then understanding. But the Mashiach is also talked about in literature, the time period, as being the wisdom or the chokhmah of God. And as that comes down into Aramaic, the Mashiach is called the Mamre of God or the Word of God. Thus you can see now John chapter 1. The Word became flesh. And as it scrolls up earlier in chapter 1 of John, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the picture there is that the wisdom of God is the tree of life. And thus, if you say, what is the beginning of knowledge? In Proverbs, what it says, fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And it goes on later, and you'll say, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom as well. So, where do you learn about what it truly means to fear the Lord? God's Word, because as we talked about with the 
the the Hebrew verb of yara, which is where we get fear from, it's also a form of to see. So thus, it gets where the idea has come through the centuries, and the idea that a part of what it means to revere the Lord is to really take into yourself that the Lord sees you. Because you see it in the prophets where they talk about a problem of the nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Yehuda or Judah. One of the problems was, is they said, the Lord does not see us. We'll just do whatever we want to do. The Lord doesn't see us. So we're just going to do what we want to do. But a part of the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, is yes, the Lord does see you. You can't play hide and seek from the creator of heaven and earth. Which, when you talk about us, we going through the, the Torah, and one of the lessons of the Mishkan, or the, the, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is the candlesticks. And you see in the prophetic writings that the candlesticks are pictured of the eyes of God going throughout the world. And you see that again in the first few chapters of the book of Revelation where they talk about the seven lampstands and the Messiah walking amongst the lampstands, the idea that you have the eyes of God seeing the whole totality of the congregation and seeing what's going on in the world itself. So thus you see that this tree of life is synonymous with the Torah, or the revelation of who God is. So, people have observed that in Genesis chapter 3, you've got the, the tree of life is blocked there, with the first couple being thrown out of the garden, and these, these cherubim, these, the cherubs, not fat little babies with wings, but uh, terrifying <laughs> uh, heavenly creatures that you don't want to mess, or mess with or get on their bad side, they block your way to the tree of life. What is the Mishkan, or the tabernacle, decorated with? Cherubim. Remember the instructions for the, for the, it's trying to weave them into the curtains. They're in the curtains, and especially the veil between what we call the holy place and the most holy place, and what is in the most holy place? The ark. What is on the ark? The cherubim and their wings covering over. Okay. What is under the cherubim? Well, you got the mercy seat, that covering. What is under that? The tablets, the Ten Commandments, are underneath that. So, what are the Ten Commandments? Words of God, you could say the, the distillation of the whole Torah. So, you talk about the, all the words of God kind of distilled down to ten. So, thus, you've got, when it talks about Israel went up to the mountain after being delivered out of the house of bondage, taken to the mountain, tablets. They meet God. And they're called. God gives them, through Moshe, the tablets. And that they're called also, the tablets of the testimony, the tablets of the witness. This is who God is, distilled down to ten 
statements, as they call them, in their ten words. This is literally in Hebrew, they're called ten words. Ten sayings. Ten statements. So thus you're seeing that the words of God, the statements of God, connected to this is the way of life. This is the way of life versus the way of death. Back in the garden, tree of life. Tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Do you want to listen to God say, you don't need to go to the tree of knowledge of good and bad? Well, then who do you go to? You just wander around the garden? As we mentioned earlier about that the Lord was coming into the garden in the cool of the evening. That's who you go to. But instead of going to the Lord, they were hiding. Why were they hiding? It mentions there in the passage. Because we were, it said, naked, and we felt ashamed. So, in years past, we've gone through this whole wordplay that we see in this particular chapter of what this picture of nakedness is. Because, you know, this is not like the Greco-Roman thing where they just, they, as you see, and you go to a museum or something like that, it's like this beauty of the human form. And so we just were just revel in the beauty of the human form. But in the Bible, you see, in the beginning, this idea of nakedness was not something that brought shame with it. But then nakedness brought shame with it. Well, what happened in between? decided to go to the tree of knowledge of good and bad instead of to the one who planted both the trees that said, don't go to that one. So, one of the pictures, though, is, is that nakedness is the idea of there is nothing hidden. Nothing hidden at all. So, we, if we have nothing hidden between us and the Creator, there is nothing to hide. We are not ashamed. But if we have something to hide, and we actually want to hide ourselves, then we don't want to be totally exposed. We don't want to be totally transparent, see-through, so that the Creator of Heaven and Earth sees everything. But what is one of the, the great lies that we tell ourselves about that? That if we hide, you can't see us. But what is one of the things about Yirah, fear of the Lord? The Lord does see. The Lord sees everything. There's nothing that we're actually hiding. We're only hiding ourselves from the Lord. We're not actually hiding from the Lord. We are ourselves pulling back at a distance. So. Thus you see that this picture of this tree, the trees that we have in the garden, is also the tree of life. You've got this connection there in the word between the tree of life and the words of God encapsulated in the testimony of God. So thus you see some very interesting things start to show up in Scripture. And that's kind of where we'll, we'll finish out here today. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we just talked about that. 
Man will not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then, near the end of Deuteronomy, what do we hear again? That the word is not so far off. That you have to go somewhere else to go find it. You have to go on some guru quest. We have to go out there and try to find it here, find it there. No. The word is close to you. It's near to you. It's in your mouth and where else? In your heart. In your mouth and in your heart. That idea of words. And not just words of blah, 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 blah. But words that are taken into the deepest part of you, that they come out of you. As Yeshua talked about in Mark chapter 7. You know, it's not what goes into you that's bad. It's what comes out of you that's bad. The The stuff stuff that that is in the deepest parts of you. If that part of you, in the deepest parts of you, is bad, well then, what's going to come out of you is bad. You can hide it for a while, but you will pretty soon see the truth yourself. Others will see the truth. And the Lord has never been confused about what's really going on inside of us. Psalm 19, verse 1, where it talks about the heavens declare God's glory. And every day they pour forth speech. So, one of these pictures that you see of just the grand collection of the world and the things that God has made. What do they tell us? We were talking about earlier, what is the thing that distinguishes between mankind and anything else that has nefesh chaim in it? This is, it's information, but it's also intelligent information. The dialogue can happen. The dialogue back and forth. So, when we go out and we see these things around us, that are made by God, put in place by God's power, what do they tell us? That there is something else, someone else, that is putting things into motion? We mentioned here recently that there was a growing understanding amongst even some atheists that, hey, um, our ideas about how the world came into being are not only wrong, themselves, but they're destructive. Is bad. Saying that, that things just made themselves, themselves is bad for society. Tears things down. And one of the things that we see from the garden experience with the, with the tree of the knowledge of good and bad is that what we're facing here today with... You know, call it today, critical theory, or has gone down to critical race theory, is just the latest iteration of what we just see in the happening in the garden. Did God really say? Is that an honest question? No. And that is the heart of what critical theory is. When you see people saying, oh, this isn't right in society, that's not right in society, do they want to change it, or do they just want to tear it down? And just hope that utopia springs out of it in the process. That is at the heart of what critical theory is. You tear down what is so that 
the grand utopia will just spring out of the ashes of it. But what actually happens when you do that? When you just tear things down with no plan for how it's going to come out the other end or try to make it differently on the other end. Okay, the evil spirit goes out, gets a bunch of buddies. It's kind of like what we say, turn away from the evil. So you see there's something bad in society, but you're not turning toward the good. Then you have no plan. There's no way to actually get home, so to speak. And we've seen in some relatively recent history on our planet, the French Revolution is a grand example of just that very thing. You go in, you blow up the existing order as bad as it was because, you know, remember the monarchy was bad. They were doing some terrible things of oppressing the people. But what was the plan at the other end of that? Egalité, liberté, fraternité. Yeah, well, the problem is at the other end that just friendship and liberty and such, if you've got no plan, no boundaries or this or that at the other end, it just ends up as terror. And thus what we see, the dominion, oh yeah, that comes into play. People will gladly, the one who has the bigger stick will gladly use it on those who have no stick or a smaller stick. They'll gladly use it. We see with things like the Inquisition, but that's with an idea of looking to tear down a religion that existed. So, some of the other things that we see in, like Isaiah chapter 66, something that we, we recite every time there's a new moon that comes around and talks about, you know, from new moon to new moon and from every, from Shabbat to Shabbat, all mankind will come and bow down before God. Okay, well, this whole thing of every person coming to bow down before God, why? Why do you come to bow down before God? Yeah, deserves glory, but the thing is, is that you trust that what has been represented is the way that things actually are. That God has done this. God did create the heavens and the earth. That God did take our ancestries and the ancestors out of the house of bondage. That did take us out of house of bondage and will take us out of bondage and take us to the land, to a place of rest out the other end. That there was one that the word was going to be made flesh. That the word did become flesh that dwelt among us. And that the dwelling place of God is always wanted to be with mankind. From the garden, what we just read about walking with Adam and Eve there in the garden, to the dwelling place of God being with mankind at the end, as we read about the end of Revelation. And we see the picture of this word that word that we see in Genesis chapter 1, that the word of God, let there be light. And God said, let there be light. We see in John chapter 1, 
And we see also in places like Hebrews chapter 1 that this is this word of God in the world brings things into being. Which makes it even more amazing that the word of God that brings things into being, that makes things happen in the world, is what we call the Messiah. The Savior. That, you know, we, we talk a lot about the, the call the Homer or the light and heavy argument that you see in Scripture. Well, think about that. The one who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence does that through the word. How much more then will the word of God become flesh, recreate you, recreate the world, the heavens and the earth, to be what are promised to be? So thus, you know, through all of that great legacy, Thus, you know, from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, you're going to bow down to give honor to the creator of heaven and earth. The one who, as they sing about at the beginning part of Revelation, you know, the one who was and is and is to come. All of those aspects of the creator of heaven and earth have happened, are happening, will happen. So, and the great picture that we have in Revelation where it talks about the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. And it talks about that it has 12 months of produce. And the 12 months of produce are for what? It talks about the healing of the nation. The time of the day of the Lord. One of the things you see about the time of the day of the Lord is what happens when people realize when the day of the Lord comes, they don't know what's going on, but they've heard that, hey, God is with you. Where, what do they do? They come to go find the ones who know, know the Lord. Because that's, remember, part of the New Covenant prophecy in Jeremiah 31? You know, that they will all know the Lord, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And there's that phrase of, they will all know the Lord, has a because part in there. They will know the Lord because, he says, I will forgive your iniquity, forgive your treason, and remember it no more. And thus, that is one of the great missions of the Mashiach, the Word made flesh. As you see, they kind of encapsulated there in you know, like John chapter 13 through 17, where he's talking in so many ways about how this is one of the great missions of the Messiah, is to take our past, make it no more. Make us somebody different at the other end. So that's one of the, the great pictures that we have in all of this, is that when we talk about here in the, in the garden, it's the same thing we keep seeing again and again and again. There is a way that leads to life, tree of life. There is a way that leads to death, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. Now, 
it's one of those things when you have that choice the one choice of the tree of knowledge of good and bad it can look like it's more appealing i did it my way i found it my way well praise god if you go down a path and as uh, paul talks about it grasping about in the darkness and maybe reach on to some little part of truth and light in the process and that god pulls us in and brings us into the kingdom because of that but what is the better route to go to stumble around until you maybe find the the path to life or is it to go to the one who's the giver of life first and that is the message it's we talk about, about the, the good, good news of the kingdom. kingdom. That's, that's great, is that not only does the creator of heaven and earth want you to go to the path of life, to go to the tree of life, to give you life, that being the best option, don't go that other way. But if you do go that other way, there is the word made flesh. The word of God made flesh that will cover over your sins, your transgressions, and your iniquities. And not just kind of put a band-aid over it, just completely erase it as if it did not happen. And that is a purposeful forgetting because the one who sees all says, I will not remember that anymore. So thus, when you see, like, in the... Apostles' letter, First John chapter one, where it talks about you know don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father. That's one of the the great good news parts of the kingdom is go to the tree of life, choose life, but if you choose death, you can have a lifeline that's thrown out to you. Will you actually grab it? In the process so one of the great things when we talk about being out in the the great harvest of God is that pray that there will be a lot more workers in the harvest that all of us will be prepped ready to go when the Lord brings the crop that we be a part of it whatever part that we have to play in this great casting out of the word of God into the world that we can be a part of helping, helping it, it to be, be a good crop. crop. So any last thoughts as we close out here today? Well, I oh. have a couple. Yes, go, go ahead, LaRose. Well, when we got up to chapter 6, uh, we noticed that Noah was building an ark. Yes. And I have a recipe of how to build an ark. <laughs> you stay in the word, you obey the word, you declare the word, and I recommend Psalm 91, Hebrews 11.3, and Romans, uh, where was I reading, Romans, uh, well, the whole book of Romans, actually, oh, yes. Romans, Romans 11.3, the faith chapter. You could read the whole chapter. Uh, you know, the law demands righteousness. Grace, Grace. supplies righteousness. 
So if you read Romans 5.17, you'll see that, you know, all things, all God's word is all good. So uh, that's mm -hmm. my thought for the day. Yep. Yes, uh, go, go ahead, Deborah. Um, I just want to say this. I've been thinking about this all week about um, that, you know, the good news is God's government's coming and, and it is going to be one world. Oh, praise God. And it's going to be one. That's the good news. It's one world government. And however, we are blessed because we are getting to know his laws. Anyway, one world government is one world government is coming and it's going to supersede man's. And so we're so blessed right now to be able to learning his laws and his government and how he operates. And I feel all week I was thinking how grateful I am. You know, I don't want to be one after he, you know, opens up the law. I don't want to be a treasonous person. So. I just want to say that one world government's coming, but it ain't the one that they think because that other one's a counterfeit. So Yahoo. Yahoo. Well, praise God about that. Close out here with a re reminder about the next reading that we have coming up, which is Noah covers uh, Genesis chapter six, verse nine goes through a good chunk of chapter 11. And parallel passages for that is Isaiah chapter 54 and 55. And, uh, so we have some other passages from the apostolic writings on that as well. And you can find all that at uh, halal.info slash P2 for parasha number two. Halal.info slash P2. Close out with prayer. Father God, we thank you and praise you for giving us your words of life. And Father, we thank you for again reminding us to choose life and not a way that leads to death. Father, we thank you for having mercy on us when we get wooed away and enticed by that way that just looks so attractive that doesn't actually lead anywhere. And Father, we just ask that you, you guide us along in this path toward your life that you give us. We thank you for the promise of eternal life that you've given us through the word made flesh in your son Yeshua. We thank you for the mercy you've shown us through him. In the name of your son Yeshua, amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel